Welcome, and thank you for joining Latter-day Stone Catchers, where we believe the gospel is love-centered and stones should be caught and never thrown. My name is Jeff, and I'm glad you're here. This week we're continuing our study of the Come, Follow Me curriculum, specifically 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Though honestly, we're going to spend the bulk of our time in the first two chapters of that first epistle from Paul to Timothy. Before we even get into the scriptures, it's important to note that we are reading a personal letter from Paul to Timothy, written 2,000 years ago. Now, maybe Paul understood just how widely distributed this personal letter would be, but I kind of doubt that. I, I, just, I just can't imagine that Paul understood that 2,000 years later, there would be millions of people reading this letter, trying to figure out what he meant, talking about it, pulling truths, and even basing the major decisions that they make in their life around it. So I think that's important to keep in mind. I do think there's some beautiful truths in here, but I think it's also important for us to remember that this is a letter from Paul to Timothy that he probably never anticipated would be used this way. An interesting thing to think about. Let's jump into 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul starts out with sort of a standard greeting, and where I really want to start looking at these verses is in verse 5. He says, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. There's a couple of phrases or words in there that I want to spend a little bit of time on. The first is that very first statement, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart. The first scripture that comes to mind is in Jacob chapter 4 verse 14 where Jacob talks about how the people have been looking beyond the mark. And this verse in Paul tells us exactly what the mark is. The end of the commandment, the end of the law, the mark that we too often look beyond and miss is charity out of a pure heart, which of course aligns perfectly with those two great commandments that Jesus Christ gave famously, to love God and to love your neighbor. And then he teaches in other places that we actually love God by loving our neighbor. So I really view those almost as one single great commandment. Love God and love your neighbor. That's the end of all the law and the prophets, according to what Jesus said. The end of the commandment is charity. That should be the end of everything that we do in the church. Loving our neighbors, loving those around us, and making sure that they can feel God's love. The other phrase that made me pause and think quite a bit is that last one, faith unfeigned. And unfeigned is kind of a unique word that we're semi-familiar with, but I think it's helpful to look at some other translations. Um, other translations say that's a genuine faith or a sincere faith, or I sort of think of it as an unfaked faith, unhypocritical faith, uh, some other translations give, or a true faith. What that made me think about, as far as what a faith unfeigned is, we know that our faith should be in Jesus Christ. Often we place our faith in other things, teachings of certain people, or even certain people themselves, but our faith, in a gospel perspective, should be centered on, and really only in, Jesus Christ. That is who and what our faith should be in. And it's a faith in his grace and mercy, in the love of our heavenly parents. To me, it's a faith that 
as I try to pattern my life after his, as best as I understand it, that I will be able to return and be with my heavenly parents, Jesus Christ, and everybody else in the next life. It's faith that as I strive to feel the love of my heavenly parents and help others to feel that, and specifically patterning Jesus Christ's mortal ministry in looking for those that the religious institution and society has left behind or as deemed as unworthy or unfit to belong in and participate in sacred spaces. As I do that, I will be able to feel my heavenly parents' love and that that is what will help me to come to know them. Our faith should be centered on Jesus Christ and faith unfeigned to me would mean that while we say that we believe in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and our heavenly parents, that we potentially don't fully trust or have faith in that grace and mercy for ourselves and especially for other people. We hold ourselves to some standard of perfectionism or we try to enforce our understanding of God's law on other people. To me, both of those things represent faith feigned, I suppose, um, the opposite of what Paul is telling us that we should have. Faith unfeigned means that we fully trust in the grace and mercy and love of our heavenly parents, that we fully have faith in that grace and mercy and love for ourselves, that it is absolutely infinite and unconditional and will bring us back to them, as well as for others in the same way, that it is infinite, unconditional, and will bring others back to them as well. Faith unfeigned means that we believe God's power, God's love, can and will bring anybody who would like to be in their presence back to them. I think for a long time, my understanding of the word faith was a certain set of beliefs or doctrines, specifically those espoused by whatever church we belong to. But my understanding of faith is different now, and that is that it is trust in the power and love and mercy and grace of our heavenly parents for us and for others. So I am striving for faith unfeigned. It's no longer about making sure I'm doing all of the right things or even believing all of the right things, but instead believing and trusting in the atonement of Jesus Christ for myself and for others fully and completely. Paul goes on in these verses in this letter to Timothy saying that some have swerved away from these things, turning aside to vain jangling, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say or whereof they affirm, or a better translation of that word would be strongly assert. And I think that's a really important distinction that we should be striving for faith or trust in Jesus Christ unfeigned rather than pushing strong assertions. Strong assertions are something that we are very fond of, I think, in any organization, including our church. We love to strongly assert that our understanding of Scripture, of God's law, is the correct one, and that everybody needs to conform to that, or in some way they're not acceptable to their heavenly parents in Jesus Christ. I think we need to let go of those strong assertions 
realize that our understanding is imperfect, just like everybody else's understanding is imperfect, and instead strive for faith, trust in our Heavenly Parents unfeigned. Letting go of strong assertions and instead trusting our Heavenly Parents. The next verse, verse 8, But we know that the law is good if man use it lawfully. I know I've, I think I've used this quote in previous episodes, but I just couldn't help but be reminded of something Adam Miller said on a podcast with Faith Matters. He also discusses these concepts really extensively in his book, Original Grace, which I highly recommend. But this is something he said on that podcast regarding this exact thing that Paul is talking about, using the law lawfully. Because Paul's saying, we know the law is good, we must use it lawfully. But what does that mean? This is what Adam Miller says. Whenever you're using the law to tell any kind of story, good or bad, about who deserves what, then I think your position in relationship to the law in a way that is fundamentally sinful. What a Christian relationship to the law looks like, I think, is instead of using the law to tell a story about what people deserve on the basis of their past actions, what happens is that you start instead to use the law as a way of deciding what is needed here and now in light of life's circumstances, so that the law becomes a kind of guide in the work of love rather than fundamentally a tool of reward or punishment. And that, in the end, is the only way to actually fulfill the law because the law can only be fulfilled by love. And love's fundamental job is to respond to what's needed regardless of whether or not people do or don't deserve the kind of help that they need. I'll put a link to that specific podcast episode in the description, but as I said, he discusses these concepts in beautiful detail in his book, Original Grace. I'll put a link to that one as well. But I love that. The law is good if a man or if a person use it lawfully. And the way to lawfully use the law is not to determine what somebody deserves based on what they have done, because let's be honest, none of us have a perfect understanding of anybody's circumstances. Instead, we should recognize that the law is love and that the law can only be fulfilled, as Paul told in many of his other letters, by love. That is the only way to fulfill the law. The law can never be fulfilled by us striving to, in our personal lives, fulfill every single commandment perfectly according to our imperfect understanding. It could just never happen. And it could definitely never be fulfilled by us trying to push our imperfect understanding on others and trying to force them to conform to that as well. That can never fulfill the law. The law can only be fulfilled by love. I love that teaching from Paul and how Adam Miller echoes that in his thoughts as well. We have one example in history of one person who understood the law perfectly. And I think it's very important and instructive to see how he approached those who the religious institution at the time had deemed unworthy or unclean or unwelcome in specific sacred spaces. Jesus approached every single person who had been rejected by the religious institution or by society with nothing other than love and mercy and grace. Never judgment. The only people who he ever condemned or excluded are those who condemned or excluded others. If Jesus, whose understanding of the law and understanding 
of people's individual situations were both perfect and he approached only with love, mercy, and grace, never condemnation and judgment, then we should absolutely do the same thing, recognizing that our understanding of the law is imperfect and we could never understand what is in somebody else's heart or mind. So our default should always be love, mercy, grace, and inclusion. Never condemnation, judgment, and exclusion. All right, let's jump down a few verses to verse 13. And Paul is going to relay a little bit of previous experience and to try and show Timothy just how big the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ is. Paul starts in verse 13, or actually let's go back to verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. As I said, Paul is sharing with Timothy a little bit of personal backstory to try and show him just how great and grand the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ is. I think it's interesting that he calls himself chief among sinners because we know what Paul's life was like before his amazing conversion as it's recorded in scripture occurred. Before he became a disciple of Jesus Christ, he had a different outlook on the law and one's relationship to God. His understanding was that the way to God was through strict obedience to the law, the law specifically contained in Torah. And of course, as he's just told us, he doesn't view there as being anything wrong with the law. In fact, he says the law is good if it is used lawfully. If we recognize that the supreme law is love, that the purpose for every law, for everything that a prophet ever said in truth was to love your neighbor, to love everyone around you. But before he became a disciple of Jesus Christ, he took it upon himself to go around and try to force others to conform to the law. It seems as though he sort of took that as his mission to travel around specifically to Christian communities, those who were trying to follow Jesus Christ and punish them. He even witnessed the martyrdom of Stephen, throw them into prison and try to force them to conform to his understanding of the law. And I think that's important to realize because I think my definition of what a sinner is, which Paul is saying he is the chief among all sinners, has changed quite a bit. I used to view a sinner as somebody who did not force their life to conform to God's law. Paul was definitely doing that, and he was zealous in doing so. He made sure that his life conformed to his understanding of God's law, and yet he's telling us here that he was chief among sinners. Perhaps his faith was in the law rather than in the grace and mercy and love of God. So although Paul's not here and we can't ask him what he meant when he said he was chief among sinners, it's interesting to think about what his life was like during that period of time he's describing as being chief among sinners. It wasn't that he wasn't conforming to his understanding of God's law. 
It's that that's where he was putting his faith and his trust, and he was also trying to force others to conform to his understanding of God's law. He was likely perfect in keeping his understanding of God's law, and yet he viewed himself as chief among sinners. And that helps me understand that sin isn't so much about whether or not your life is perfectly conforming to yours or another person's understanding of God's law, but whether you view yourself or others as less than or separated from God because of your lack of conformity to your understanding of God's law. All right, in the next verse, 16, he says, How be it for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might shew forth all longsuffering, for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. I love that, that the grace and mercy that Jesus showed to Paul is a pattern, a pattern to show us that God will show that grace and mercy to all of us, and I think also a pattern for the grace and mercy that we should show to others. It's a pattern. And then Paul closes this first chapter, or this first part of his epistle, with this charge to Timothy. He says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy. And I'm going to skip to verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. The KJV, as is often the case, is a little bit difficult to read there, so I want to read that same verse from the NRSV. It says, Having faith and a good conscience. By rejecting conscience, certain persons have suffered shipwreck in their faith. I love those two things that Paul says we need to do to avoid shipwrecking our faith. And I wish I had understood them much earlier than now, because I think that that could have helped me prevent what definitely felt like a shipwreck of my faith. Those two things that Paul pointed out were maintaining faith, and as I mentioned earlier, my understanding of faith has changed quite a bit. It used to be making sure that I knew or believed the right things and also did the right things. Instead, now I think of faith as trust in my heavenly parents and in Jesus. There's an excellent book called The Sin of Certainty by Peter Enns, where he discusses this basically throughout the entire book. But here's just one short quote from that book. He says, Belief and faith always have content, a what. But a faith that looks like what the Bible describes is rooted deeply in trust in God rather than ourselves and in faithfulness to God by being humbly faithful to others as the Father and the Son have been faithful to us. That's basically it, though it's anything but easy. So Pete Enns is saying, faith is about trust. Trust and faithfulness to God. And then I like how he says being faithful to others as Jesus Christ has been faithful to us. And of course, Jesus Christ was faithful to us regardless of everything. His love and mercy is absolutely unconditional and infinite. We can see that in all of the interactions that he has in his life. As we talked about earlier, he welcomed everybody. He included everybody. Anybody who was okay with everybody being included was included, including those who the religious institution had deemed unworthy to be included. So I, 
I love that understanding of faith. And that's the first thing that Paul mentions here that we need to maintain to avoid shipwrecking our faith. Trust in our heavenly parents and faithfulness to others rather than trusting our imperfect understanding. That's the first one. The second one is interesting. He says, and a good conscience. And in fact, it says, by rejecting conscience, certain persons have suffered shipwreck in their faith. I know for me personally, there have been times where if I had followed my conscience, I would have said or done certain things that did not completely align with what may have been being taught from official publications or pulpits. And in doing that, I was not following my conscience. I was not following the truths that I felt like the light of Christ had led me to. And I was not, as Pete N said in that previous quote, being faithful to the divinity within others. And approaching my faith that way truly did bring me to a shipwreck of faith. I couldn't align what I was feeling and understanding from my understanding of the gospel with things that were being said by others and trying to make my life conform to what others were saying the gospel was truly did cause me a shipwreck of faith. I'm grateful now that I'm able to live and profess and share my faith and my understandings in a way that's consistent with my conscience. And because I'm able to do that, I feel like my faith continues to grow and to expand rather than shipwrecking, as Paul has warned here. I should also quickly note that when I first read that verse in the KJV, I wanted to look at other translations to see how else they would describe shipwreck, and every single one of them used that precise word. It's very descriptive and must have been exactly what Paul was talking about. He wants us to avoid a shipwreck of faith by maintaining our faith as trust in our heavenly parents and a good conscience. I know there could be different understandings of that verse. That's what came to my mind as I was reading this epistle from Paul to Timothy. All right, let's jump to chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. That's right, that was just the first chapter of 1 Timothy. This is why we're only going to get to these first two chapters rather than the rest of the material, and that's okay. So in chapter 2, he starts in verse 1 just giving a lot of sort of instructions. He says, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that they may, that they may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Now I really love what he says next. Who will have all men to be saved? and to come unto him the knowledge of the truth. Sometimes I think that our theology and understanding can lead us to the belief that our heavenly parents only want a certain type of person with them. Somebody who has done certain things or not done or said other things. But we read right here, Jesus Christ our Savior, at least according to Paul's belief, would have all people to be saved. All people. That's reminiscent of things that Jesus said in his own ministry when he told his disciples that God's will is that he should lose nothing, that he will lose nothing, but in fact will raise them all up at the last day. Sometimes we view 
who will be in God's presence as very exclusive. Personally, I view it as very, very inclusive and expansive. And I love that Paul says that here, that Jesus would have all people to be saved, all of us. Paul goes on to say, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now I want to jump down to verse 8 really quick. He says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands with wrath, uh, without wrath and doubting. That last word caught my attention, as maybe did some of yours as I was reading it, that we should pray without wrath and doubting. I'll admit that I have uttered some very wrathful and doubting prayers in my day, and those are honestly the prayers that are the most meaningful. The word doubting is translated much differently in all other translations. All of the other translations use something like contention or something of that nature rather than doubting. There is nothing, nothing wrong with doubting. In fact, to me personally, in my understanding of faith, doubt is actually part of faith. Without doubt, I don't even think that you have faith. So this verse should never be used to try and make people feel like they don't have faith or they don't have sufficient faith because they're doubting something else. Especially if somebody has doubts about what mortals have done in the name of God. I know even in our own church history, there have been some things done in God's name that absolutely should not have been done. And those things can bring doubts into our minds regarding a lot of things. And this verse should never be weaponized in a way to make those people feel like they don't have faith. Doubt is a part of faith, in my mind at least. I also want to say that we shouldn't feel like we have to approach we shouldn't feel like God only wants to hear from us when we're calm and collected and everything is going right. We shouldn't feel like we can't have honest, open, emotional conversations with God. As I said, those are the ones that are the most meaningful. I don't remember the prayers that I say where I just rattle off a couple of things and then go to bed. The prayers that I remember are the ones where I was suffering and needed something and didn't understand why God would let these certain things happen. So please don't let this verse make you feel like your prayers have to look and feel and sound a certain way for them to be acceptable to God. I don't believe that that's the case. I believe they want to hear from us, especially when we're angry and grieving and hurt. They especially want to hear from us in those times. Chapter 2 closes out with Paul's, I don't know how else to say it, backwards views about women. Obviously, this was 2,000 years ago. We're not going to judge Paul's character he was an amazing disciple of Christ, but we're all products of our generation with built-in biases, prejudices, 
and blind spots and things that we're just dead wrong about. So it's important that we give Paul grace for the things that were just a result of him living 2,000 years ago, but at the same time, we need to talk about them and make sure that they're not further perpetuated 2,000 years later just because Paul wrote them in a letter to Timothy. And I'm just going to read most of these from the NRSV because it's a lot easier to understand than the KJV. So starting in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, Also, that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes. Now, anytime we hear the M word, modesty, we really need to pause and talk about what it actually means in context. Too often verses like this are used to enforce upon young women and adult women what is appropriate to wear or what is the Christian thing to wear, what is the modest thing to wear. What Paul is talking about here is wearing overly extravagant clothes that are done precisely to show off somebody's wealth in the presence of those who have far, far less. Modesty here is not about hemlines, shoulder straps, skirts, shorts, anything like that. It is about showing off wealth in the presence of those who are in great need. That's the modesty that Paul is talking about here. So this verse should never be used to try and tell a young woman that her skirt should be a little longer, that the straps should be a little wider, that her shirt should be a little longer. It just should never be used that way. That's not what modesty is about. As I believe I've said in a previous episode, I have two teenage daughters. We tell them to wear whatever makes them confident and comfortable and is appropriate for the situation. Admittedly, that has resulted in them in sometimes wearing things in certain situations where I know that there are probably members of the church making judgments on making judgments on them and even as me and my wife as their parents. I don't care. We tell them to wear whatever makes them comfortable, confident, and is appropriate for the situation. Modesty policing needs to go away. And this verse should never be used that way. And it's clear just based on the context. It's not talking about how much skin is showing. It's talking about the amount of wealth you're showing off in the presence of those in great need. He goes on to say, But with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God, let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. This is ridiculous. First of all, it's not consistent with other things that Paul has said in his previous letters and women he has recognized as having positions of authority within the church. Specifically, in Romans 16, Paul talks about Junia, who he says is outstanding among the apostles. I know there's this debate about whether or not he's referring to Junia, a female, as an apostle, or just being not an apostle, but outstanding among the apostles. In either case, if a woman is outstanding among the apostles, she is definitely not, what well, Paul says here, 
keeping silent or learning in silence with full submission. We read about arguments and discussions that the apostles had in the book of Acts all the time for Yunya to be outstanding among the apostles who were sent to be missionaries in places where they were often not welcome. These verses certainly would not describe her. In that same chapter in Romans, he also Paul also mentions Phoebe, who is a deacon, and Prisha, who is a pastor. So whatever whatever the writer here is getting at, first of all, it's not consistent with other things that Paul said, because he recognized women in positions of authority within the ancient church. Second of all, it's not consistent with how I believe God views the human family or even the direction that I feel like the church is going in teaching about this. I want to share a couple excerpts from the Gospel Topics essay about Heavenly Mother. These are a couple things that it says in there because I think that they're instructive for how we should view men and women. In that essay, it says, Susie Young Gates, a prominent leader in the church, wrote in 1920 that Joseph Smith's visions and teachings revealed the truth that, quote, the Divine Mother is side by side with the Divine Father. Another place in that essay, it says, Prophets have taught that our heavenly parents work together for the salvation of the human family. So, side by side and working together for the salvation of the human family is a far cry from what Paul is describing here. Keeping silent, being in full submission, not being allowed to teach. No, women should be full and equal participants in every aspect of our lives, the church, any organization that we want to do well should have women as full and equal participants in that organization. I always think to myself that I can't imagine somebody quoting these verses in a church context to try and tell women that they should keep silent or submit, but I know that it still happens. It blows my mind, but it still happens. So if that happens where you are, please tell them that they are wrong. It's interesting to read further Paul's justification for these misogynistic views. He says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So Paul is saying that it's this way because Adam was created first and then Eve was created, and also because Eve was, quote, the transgressor. And those are two things that specifically in our LDS theology, we reject. There's two creation accounts in the book of Genesis. In one, man and woman were created at the same time. One was not created to be less than the other. That's nonsense. And this point about Eve being deceived and not Adam, specifically in our LDS theology, and I think many others take the same approach now, Eve was actually making the correct choice. She was not deceived. She was making the correct choice. She was doing the right thing. The thing that, for whatever reason, Adam didn't think to do, thought that he shouldn't do, we don't know. But Eve did the correct thing. So if Paul is saying women should submit to men or be silent or not be allowed to teach in certain spaces because Eve was deceived, not Adam. In our LDS theology, we would actually say that that might be the opposite. I am not saying that men should be silent 
and that they should submit to women. What I am saying is Paul's wrong. <laughs> and to try to say, to try to justify mistreatment of women with these verses based on the story of Adam and Eve is just silly. Let me share a couple of quotes from a general conference talk from Richard G. Scott in this regard. He said, Eve was Adam's equal, a full, powerfully contributing partner. He said later in that same talk, they, Adam and Eve, worked together. They obeyed the commandment to have children. They knew the plan of happiness and followed it, even though at times it resulted in hardship and difficulty for them. Now, I think it's important to look at this statement from Richard G. Scott and make sure we fully understand. He's saying they worked together. They obeyed the commandment to have children. Now, the only reason they could obey that commandment to have children is because Eve was the first to partake of the fruit. She did the right thing. They knew the plan of happiness and followed it. According to the record that we have in Genesis, Eve knew the plan of happiness and followed it and then convinced Adam to do the same. I'm not trying to hammer on this point too long. I just want to make sure that we're clear about what happened there, at least according to our theology. Elder Jess L. Christensen said this in a January 2002 Enzyme article. As Latter-day Saints, we believe that Adam and Eve's choice to partake of the forbidden fruit was ultimately a good thing, an essential act for our growth. And again, we'll just note, based on the scripture, Eve chose to partake of the fruit first. She was ahead of Adam in making that decision. So, what Paul is saying here is that women should be treated a certain way because Eve made this mistake is, as I said, nonsense. Men and women, all genders, all ethnicities, all races, all everything should be full and equal participants because we were all equally, beautifully, divinely created by our heavenly parents. None should be told what's being said here to keep silent and to fully submit to somebody else who probably doesn't have an understanding of that person's situation. I just don't think that that should happen. It makes me think of the scripture in 2 Nephi 2 verse 25, where it says, Adam fell that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. But if we were to try to correctly represent what happened there according to what's recorded in Genesis, I would say it's something like this. Adam fell because he listened to Eve that humans might be, and humans are, that they might have joy. Whether you view the Adam and Eve story as history or an origin myth, we should be able to agree that in that story, that founding story, the woman, Eve, did the exact opposite of what Paul is saying here. Adam, thankfully, listened, and because of that, we are here and we are that we might have joy. So I love Paul, but I am not going to accept these specific things that he included in this letter to Timothy. Everyone should be viewed as full and equal participants. None should be silenced. None should be told that they need to learn in submission. That's enough of that. Let's jump to a few other verses before we close up. Paul closes this first epistle to Timothy with these words, charge them, and he's telling Timothy what to say to these, uh, this body of saints, charge them that are rich in this world 
that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. I love the idea of laying up in store good works. In reading that, I couldn't help but think about Matthew 25, some of the last, well, really the last parables that Jesus gave. The first one is the parable of the ten virgins, or I'm going to say the parable of the ten bridesmaids, because I don't think anybody should be known or referred to based on their sexual status. The parable of the ten bridesmaids. You'll remember that there were ten. As the groom came, five did not have oil, five did. The five that did not have oil went quickly to try and buy, but were eventually not able to enter the wedding feast. In fact, what they were told as they knocked on the door is that he never knew them. That parable used to really freak me out, that I would be one of those five that would get left out. How do I come to know him? Thankfully, I think Jesus gives his disciples the key in a parable at the end of this same chapter, Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats. You'll remember that the Son of Man returns, he gathers all nations, and I think that that's significant. It doesn't say anything about gathering only people with a certain belief system or people from a certain nation. It says he gathers all nations. And then there is one criteria by which he divides them. He tells the ones on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the blessed Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he tells them why. For I was in hunger, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. You'll remember as the parable goes, the righteous, those who have just been ushered into the kingdom, say, when did this happen? When did we see you hungry and fed you? When did we come to you as a prisoner? We're pretty sure we would have remembered visiting the Son of God in prison. And he tells them, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And then, of course, those on his left hand, the goats, did not do these things. They did not come to know Jesus Christ by seeing him in those around them. Of course, we should see Jesus Christ in everybody. But he teaches in this parable that we should specifically see him in those who are human minds with our biases and prejudices and preferences may be tempted or are tempted and even do reject and exclude the group that Jesus refers to here as the least of these. We can only come to know him as we serve and love the least of these, not as we wish them to be, but as they are now. Because as they are now is divine children of heavenly parents. 
And if we cannot see that in them and love them unconditionally, then we have not come to know our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is how we come to know him. So when Paul tells Timothy to lay up in store good works, I believe those are the good works that Paul is talking about. Not making sure that they comply with every single law within the scriptures and punishing those or ourselves when we don't or they don't. Instead, it's taking care of those around us. It's loving our neighbor. It's including those who others have excluded. It's making sure that everyone around us knows and feels that God loves them. That is what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. Remember, your heavenly parents love you. I love you. Catch stones. Don't throw them. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to or watching this episode of Latter-day Stone Catchers. If something here has resonated with you, please feel free to share with your family and friends or on social media. If you're listening to the podcast, I would greatly appreciate if you could leave a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. Those go a long way in helping others know that they can trust Latter-day Stone Catchers as part of their gospel study. Thanks again for joining.